And I wanted to kind of jump into just talking about the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. We're just gonna we're just gonna jump into it right now. And she, for me, is such a remarkable woman. She's such a remarkable person um, as I think about her. And, and I know many people out there are inspired by Fannie Lou Hamer because it's hard not to be. Like, how could you not be inspired by someone who loved everyone, someone who just tried to make life better for herself and for many other people from the very beginning of her life, even toward the end of her life when she was doing the Freedom Farm Cooperative and trying to get people to be able to have land and, and to, to, you know, create and develop their own food sources because they were starving and there was poverty there. She was somebody who put action to her words, and we're going to kind of delve into her life um, right now. So as you take a look at, at what I have available here, I'll mention that the resource I'm going to be going through, and as always, I'll have a resource. Usually when I do these live, a lot of times I'll have a resource with this, as always. I have this resource that's going to be on my website. It's at blackandeducation.org slash study center. I'll also likely put this in my, my study group in the, the Black History for Everyone group that we have, Facebook group that we have. I'll actually make this available there as well, shortly as well. But you can get it at blackandeducation.org slash study center. And let's share this. Let's let's talk about this. Let's let's jump into the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. And when you think about Fannie Lou Hamer, as you probably know, and for those who know or may not know, she was born in Mississippi. So October 6th, this week is her birthday. October 6, 1917 is when she was born. And she was born in, in the black belt of, of Mississippi. She was born in an area that was dominated by sharecropping at a time when sharecropping was was king, unfortunately, and a lot of people were were disenfranchised and taken advantage of because of the system of sharecropping. And she was born, as I mentioned, October 6, 1917. Her father was Jim Townsend and her mother was Luella Townsend. And it's interesting to me, I didn't notice until I started reading about her and, and listening to her, her speeches and things about her, but she was the 20th child. Her, her mother and father had 20 children. Her mother had 20 children, um, when you think about that. And she was the 20th child of, of her mother and father. And so when you think about that, and I think about how much people and how much black people have contributed to the economy and to America, period. Many of her children, many of Jim and Luella's children were sharecroppers. They were working on, on the farm and on the land that the person who owned the land forced them. And we'll talk a little bit more about specifically how the system was kind of structured to keep them impoverished and how they were used. A lot of people use blood, sweat, and tears to make this country great, and they make money for other people. And, and when we talk about it and you listen to her talk about her life, she talks not only about her mother and father, which were obviously very strong and great people, but her mother's mother was enslaved. So her grandmother on her mother's side was enslaved, probably others as well, but her grandmother was enslaved, her, her maternal grandmother, and her grandmother had 23 children. You know, a lot of times we think about in enslavement and we think about you know what happened with families and and you know when you were when you own when they were owned by someone the children you had was obviously, were obviously just born into slavery so her grandmother had you know 23 children and I'm not 100% sure if all of them were born into slavery but the, the fact of the matter is a lot of people when they were enslaved the children they had obviously were also enslaved too if slavery was still going on and you were just contributing to the the wealth and the development of other people. And so when I think about her mother having 20 children and her grandmother having 23 children, and a lot of those children either, and those people that we just mentioned, either being enslaved or sharecroppers, where they're working on somebody else's land for somebody else, that's, that's just amazing when you think about it. And, and it really goes to and it speaks to how much our people and how much people who were enslaved and impoverished contributed to this land and contributed to other people's wealth and other people's inheritance. And, and Fannie Lou Lamer's, Lamer's life really speaks to that and talks about that. 
So one of the things she talks about um, when she was um, a young child, you know, she started to have to work at the age of six. So when we think about, you know, sharecropping and we think about how people will use and children will use at the very, at very early age of six years old, she was forced to go do sharecropping. And she wasn't asked by her parents, you know, you know, the idea of sharecropping is that you're working the land and that you are obviously you don't have a lot of money and that you will hold on credit some of the resources, maybe the tools that you use, maybe even the house that you're staying in. You're, 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 you're owing that and you're only on credit to the person who owns that land, so to speak. So you raise the crops and you give a portion of the crops or a portion of your proceeds from the crops to pay off the debt that you accrued by working the land or using their land and using their resources. And, and in that way, it was it was a system of slavery. You could keep people forever indebted to you by charging them prices, you know, forcing them not to be able to go to school, controlling the, the structure in the area and the authorities in the area where children were educated, uh, people weren't reading, people were not voting, they were told, here's a contract, this is the only way you get work, you sign this contract, they may not understand the contract, you keep them forever indebted. So they make very little money and they're working your land forever and their children are working your land. And she tells a story very interesting enough that she was, when she was six years old, she was just playing like a six-year-old would play, you know, like elementary school. She, would just, she was just playing on a gravel road. She was playing on, on a road that was, had gravel on it, and the owner of the plantation where her family worked, where her family was being forced to work, came up to her and said, at six years old, can you pick 30 pounds of cotton? And he meant for the week. And she at six, she said, I don't know. He said, well, go over in that field and see if you can pick 30 pounds of cotton this week. Now, he told her to go work. Not her mother, not her father, not Jim Towson, not, not, not Ella Towson. The mother and the father did not make a determination as to when their child would go work on a plantation you know, for the family or for this, for this person. It was the owner of the plantation who did. And he told the six-year-old, Fannie Lou Hammer, to go work, and she did. That was the situation. She kind of had no choice. And she ended up picking 30 pounds of cotton that week as a six-year-old, her first time out there picking for the, for the whole week. And then when she picked the 30 pounds of cotton and he saw he, she could pick it, he doubled her task. So the very next week, she was being asked to do 60 pounds of cotton. And that's kind of how it worked. Now, you imagine being a six-year-old, a child at elementary school level and being told to pick 60 pounds of cotton for a week. That, like, that's ridiculous. But, you know, our people were strong. She was a strong woman, and her family was strong. And she ended up, you know, by the time she was 13, she was picking 200 to 300 pounds of cotton a week by the time she was 13 years old. And I remember she said in one of her, one of her, um, or her speeches that she talked about her life, she said, you know, she was talking to her mother, and she was, her mother told her to always have respect for yourself. And no matter what is going with you, you have to make sure, even if nobody else around you is respected, you have respect for yourself as a black person, as a black woman. Never give up your own respect. And eventually one day, Fannie Lou, other people will have to respect you. People will have to respect you if you maintain respect for yourself. And she said that was something that her mother taught her as she was trying to understand all the racism and all the things that was going on around her in her life. And that was something that stuck with her. That if she could just maintain respect for herself in her life and in her own mind, someday, one day, other people would have to respect her. She would demand other people's respect. And that's exactly what happened in her, in her life. That's exactly what happened. So as she, as she got older, and she was in Mississippi, as she got older, she ended up getting married. And she ended up marrying a, a man by the name of Perry Hamer. So she got married in her 20s. And unfortunately, they couldn't have children. She wasn't able to have children. She had a tumor. 
And when she had a tumor, she went to naturally, obviously, get her tumor fixed and to get it treated in the hospital. And when she went to the hospital, she ended up having an unwanted procedure. Now, they didn't tell her about this. This was called a, a Mississippi appendectomy. That's what the name was for, but it's, that's what the people called it who had it happen to them. But essentially what happened when she went into the hospital to get her tumor addressed, they ended up giving her a full hysterectomy, which was a ridiculous thing to do, to take away a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to her own body and her right to have reproductive choices. They obviously didn't want her and many other people like her, many other black women like her, having children and reproducing. So she had a hysterectomy without her knowledge, without her consent, and as I mentioned, they called it the Mississippi appendectomy. It happened so many times, they actually had a name for it. They didn't want people like her to reproduce. They didn't want her to reproduce. And so when you think about the injustices and all the things that happened to people in her life and in, 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 in her, around her time and, and in Mississippi, how do you pay that back? How do you, how do you give reparations for that? How do, you, how do you give somebody back their life or give somebody back you know, the choice or make up for the fact that the choice of even having a child or making that decision for herself and her husband was taken away from her without her knowledge and without her consent by somebody she could do nothing about. She couldn't sue them in court. She wasn't going to be able to, to um, do anything about it. This was just something that was done. And all of the authorities, when people set up oppressive systems, they set up the, the, the levers, if you will, of power to support those systems. So the police force, the, the judges, the, the, the physicians in the hospital, everybody that was the, the school system, everybody that was in control and had influence supported the system. And that is why it was so hard, and that's why it took so much fighting to get, to get rid of it. And so she talked about it at a very young age. She decided, even at the age of 13, when she was having that conversation with her mother, at the very young age, that she was going to do something to fight against the injustices that they were experiencing in Mississippi. She had that in her heart at a very young age. And so what happened was that she began to get involved into, into the civil rights movement, into, into voting rights, because that was sweeping the country in the 1960s. And, and she got involved in the 1960s. She was fairly older. You're just, she was an adult. But she still got involved, even though she, it was a little bit later in life. She started to go to try to register people to vote. And I want to kind of set up a little bit as I dig into um, this resource. I want to set up a time frame for you because it's always good for me to think about what's happening when. So, you know, we're going to talk about when she was jailed and what happened to her when she was jailed in 1963. But to give you some perspective around what's happening and where she starts to be active in the civil rights movement and the movement in general. So I'm gonna just, let's just talk a little bit. So, you know, in 1914, Marcus Garvey, he founded the UNIA, and I believe he was still in, in, in Jamaica, in Jamaica where he founded it in 1914, just to give you some idea and some, some context. In 1954, that was the Brown versus the Board of Education, famous case with um, obviously ending segregation in school and public school systems where Thur Thurgood Marshall was a part of that legal team. So that was 1954. 1955, Emmett Till was killed. He was killed right there in Money, Mississippi, and the Montgomery bus boycott took place later on that year in December where Rosa Parks refused to get up out of her seat and that helped to launch a whole community organizing around <clears throat> that event and trying to end segregation <clears throat> in public transportation. So it isn't until 1963 that Fannie Lou Hamer is famously ja jailed. So she's jailed in Mississippi in 1963. So that kind of gives you perspective from a, a <clears throat> excuse me, from a, a timeline perspective. What's interesting to me is when she's in jail, what happens to her in jail, we're going to talk about in just a little bit, but when she's in jail, Megra Evers is also 
um, assassinated. And you think about that that year of 1963, a lot of things happened in 19, 1963. You had obviously the March on Washington and I Have a Dream Street. You had obviously I Have a Dream speech. You had the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama. You had Megger Evers assassinated. And at the same time that he was assassinated, Fannie Lou Hamer was jailed and she was beaten in jail, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. So all these things are happening at the same time. It's kind of like a convergence of so many different energies, so many different forces trying to break this injustice that had taken place for so long in America. And it was still trying to fight in many ways as well to be totally free and equal. And so, and so as we look back at, you know, in, in 1962, she talks about August 31st, 1962, that she and, and about 18 people went to Indianola, Mississippi, and what they were looking to do there is they went to go register to vote. And they went to register to vote, and obviously, as I mentioned, in order to keep oppression in place, you have to have so many different levers supporting what you're doing, right? So when they went to go to vote down to, to the courthouse or the place to vote, they were not allowed to vote. The people there were in support of them not voting. And what they did was they basically just rejected them and they took a few of them, only two of them, to try to make them take a literacy test. So imagine being in a situation where you were not allowed to go to school or you were forced to work at a, as a young person. You were forced to work, but then you had to go and, and take a literacy test um, in order to be able to vote. So as you're taking this literacy test in order to be able to vote, you, you never got a chance to learn how to read. So that, that was something that was a challenge for them. So the people were given a literacy test in 1962. And what happened was they ended up leaving the area. They were not able to vote, even though they went to go register to vote. And when they were leaving the area, the bus that they were driving was stopped. And they were, they were actually charged. They were sent around, sent back to Indianola. And they were actually, the bus driver was charged with, I think the official word or something that, that Fannie Lou Hamer talks about was, they accuse him of, of, of driving a bus that had the wrong color or some, something ridiculous like that, some, some ridiculous code, and they had to pay a fine. So they went there to register to vote. They were not allowed to vote. They were giving a liter literacy test, turned away, and then as they were leaving, they were stopped and given a fine um, because they were driving a bus that was the wrong color or they had something wrong with it. And so then they had to raise money to get the bus driver out of jail to pay for this fine for, the, for, for driving a bus that was the wrong color and this is the kind of thing that, that was done to you. So you're just trying to vote and you end up walking away with a fine. And these are people who did not have a lot of money to begin with. So they're, they're actually penalizing you and giving you a penalty for, for trying to vote. And so what happened with her, you know, after that, you know, she comes back to, 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 to home, to, to Ruleville, and it, where she lived. And immediately her husband and her children, because she adopted, they adopted children. She was not able to have children. They adopted children. And the owner of the plantation where she worked, the only plantation where she was, was mad at her. And he came up to her and basically told her, look, Fanny, you know, I, did you hear that I'm mad? Did you hear I was, I was raising the bus? And she said, yes, I heard. And she, he said, you know, you have to go back down to wherever you were and make sure you take your registration away or make sure you're not registered. Make sure you, you take it back or whatever you did, undo it, because we're not ready for that in Mississippi. We're not ready for that around there. And even if for some reason you're able to take back your registration, if you were able to vote in the first place, you still might have to leave here because we're not ready for that here in Mississippi. So imagine your employer telling you you can't vote. I mean, that's literally what was happening to her. Imagine your employer telling you, you you're not allowed to vote. That's what she was. So he's threatening her with economic 
poverty and economic consequences, as well as, you know, just the, the threat of just real violence is what took place as well after that. And so basically what she said to them, and I quote, she said, you know, I heard it. She said, but I didn't go down there to register for you. <laughs> I went down to register for me, for myself. So she's basically telling her, her, her employer, you know, you're not, you're not controlling me. I'm not registering to vote for you. I'm registering for myself and I'm registering for my family. I'm not going to do that. So essentially, as soon as she, she said that to him, she, she was making a decision right there that she was going to have to do some things because she obviously was not going to be able to stay put. And that was going to set in place a lot of the things that happened. So what happened was about two weeks later, she had to leave her home. Uh, she couldn't stay at home. She had to go stay other places because she knew that obviously her home might be attacked. It might be firebombed. It might be fired upon. So she ended up staying at different people's houses. And about two weeks later, a home that it was thought she was staying in was actually fired upon. They fired 16 shots into the house thinking that she was there. In, an, in, a, in a separate incident, <clears throat> two other girls were shot in Ruleville and another house was fired upon just because people were registering to vote. So imagine being in your home and people firing bullets into your home, losing your job just because you went down to register to vote. And then also being able to pay, having to pay a fine. But that's what Fannie Lou Hamer was going through. And that's the kind of, of strength that she had. So imagine she didn't have the cameras with her at this time. This is 1962. Nobody knew about her necessarily other than the, the area in Mississippi where she was at. She didn't have TV cameras or the power of, of, of the press behind her. She was facing these death threats and threats upon her life and her family and her, and her, her job, her economy, the economy of it by herself and the people who were standing up with her, the people who were standing up there in, in Mississippi. So it's amazing the type of strength and courage we have. You know, we can, we can say one thing. It's another thing to say it when you're facing a bullet or you're facing consequences and there's nobody around you for miles to protect you but you and God. And that, that's where a lot of faith comes in. You see a lot of people in... In our, in our history who rely a lot on faith. And I know some people will have thoughts about what, what type of religion they may have uh, been, belonged to or what type of faith they had. The understanding that they had an understanding of God and an understanding of something beyond them and something inside them that had to get them through where there was nobody else to help them. There was no other man, no other entity to help them but God and their faith. And that's what she had to go through. That, that's what she had to face because pretty soon she would be front and center her along with other people in terms of the attacks and what would be, would be thrown at her because she wanted to register to vote and she wanted to help other people vote. So what happened you know, later on, on June 9th, 1963, she was going to a voter registration workshop in Charleston, South Carolina. And, and this is the, in 1963, the same time when a few days later, Mega Evers would be assassinated in Mississippi. Well, she was going to a voter registration workshop in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina and on their way back to Mississippi, the bus stopped in Montgomery County, Mississippi, which is where, where she was born. And four of them got off of the bus and people went into to a restaurant and they wanted to use the restroom and get something in the restaurant. And, and Fannie Lou Hamer stayed on the bus. She didn't get off the bus. But she noticed in a very short period of time that people were running back out. The people who had gone into the restaurant were running back out. And they were being rushed out of the restaurant. So she's like, what's going on? She gets off the bus. Uh, to, to see what's happening. Maybe she should have stayed on the bus. I don't know. She got off the bus to see what was going on to help the other people. And, and, and a police officer grabbed them and, 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 and said, hey, get that one over there. And they grabbed her too. And so she ended up being arrested. And she says she remembers being kicked and, and hit as she was being put into the police car. And then she was taken to the police station and they were put into a room in the county jail and, and they were transferred into sales. So 
all they had done was come back from a voter a registration, a voter registration workshop. They had come back, they went to, to a restroom in a restaurant, and they were being arrested, and they were put in jail. So as she was put in jail, and she talks about just that experience and what happened to her there. She, was, she remembers being in the same room with a lady named Miss Ivesta Simpson. And Miss Ivesta Simpson and her were in the same room. And then someone came in to the, into the room and took Miss Simpson out of the room and put her in a separate cell in a separate place. And as Fang Luhame was in the room, you know, listening, she could hear Mrs. Simpson just screaming. She could hear Mrs. Ivesta Simpson just screaming. She could hear somebody beating her and, and licks being laid on her as the woman was just screaming at the top of her lungs. And she could hear some, and obviously she was being beaten and tortured. And she could hear someone ask Miss Simpson, can you say yes, sir? Can you say yes, sir, nigger? Can you say yes, sir? And Mrs. Simpson, with the kind of strength and, and understanding that we have of what they had to go through, she said, yes, I can say it. He said, well, why don't you say yes, sir, to me? She said, because I don't know you well enough. And Mrs. Simpson just kept on getting the beating. She wouldn't even give that man the respect or the dignity because what he was trying to do was to break her down. They don't want to just break your, your, your mind. They don't want to just break your, your body. They want to break your spirit and, and the energy you have to go forward. But Mrs. Simpson apparently wouldn't let him do it. So then it was Fannie Lou Hamer's turn. She ended up going in a cell, and she said in the cell there was a, a Caucasian man there who was a, a police officer, an officer. He was there, and he was in charge. And he got two men, two African-American men who were inmates, who were probably obviously told to do it. I don't know what kind of threats they were given, but two African-American men who were inmates. And they took her into the room, and there happened to be bunk beds in the room, and they took a blackjack. And the first man started to beat her. And he just started to beat her while she was on the bottom bunk. And they just beat her and beat her. And she said that she had polio when she was a child. She had had polio for some point in time. And, and she was um, in a situation where she was you know, trying to protect herself because she remember how much pain and how much discomfort she had as a child. But the man beat her so hard that, that she you know, could barely protect herself. And then she said when the man beat her so badly that he got exhausted, the white man told the other black man to take the blackjack and to start beating her because the other man was tired. The first man was tired. And then he started to beat her. She said as she was in the, um, in the bed, obviously she had on a dress. You know, most women wore dresses at that time. She, her dress started to work up. So her dress was being pulled up, and she started to try to pull her dress down and protect the left side of her body. And the white man came over and yanked her dress back up because that was a way to humiliate you, right? That was a way to make you feel uncomfortable and to continue to put a humiliation on top of insult as they beat her with her dress rising up with men in the room. And then she said another man in the room got up and walked over to her and hit her in the head and said, shut up, you know, stop screaming so loud because she was screaming and hollering and told her she needed to be quiet as they were beating her. And she said they beat her so bad that her body became hard, that it became hard like metal, that, that, that the bruises just, just hardened over. She ended up having internal injuries and all types of things happened to her. And this happened in police custody while in, the, in, the, in a jail cell with police present with, with inmates beating her at the direction of, of the police officer on the orders of the police officer. And so she was somebody, she ended up staying in, in, in prison for several days before they even got her attention and got her medical attention. Uh, the folks from SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as her husband, tried to get her medical attention, but it just was not given right away. And so when you think about that, now here's a woman with two grown men beating her in a police station with nobody to protect her. And they were beating her and lifting up her skirt, trying to tell her, you stop voting, you stop registering people to vote. We're not ready for that around here. This is the kind of intimidation she was being, she was being put on her. You know, and, and when you think about that, knowing that 
that somebody could, could kill you, knowing that somebody could attack your family and still not stopping, that's the kind of amazing woman Fannie Lou Hamer had. And this was, unfortunately or fortunately, the very beginning of her career, so to speak, in the civil rights movement. That, that was something that would not make her stop. She would go on, even through the, like I said, the murder of, 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 of Megger Evers and, and Martin Luther King's assassination and Malcolm X's assassination. She understood that this violence was real and she continued to move forward and did not turn around. And one of the things that made her in, incredibly famous was that she went to tell her story. So she ended up helping to organize the Mississippi Freedom Democratic, so the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She ended up helping to organize. She was one of the organizers. There was many people who were involved in it because so many people, when we tell these stories, sometimes we have the face of a person, of one person, but you have to know that there were more people like Miss Ivessa Simpson and the other people who were arrested on that bus with Fannie Lou Hamer on that day. There were more people than just one person making this happen. That's one of the amazing parts of the civil rights movement, even the Black Lives Matter movement, but in particular the civil rights movement. That's one of the amazing parts of it. There's so many people participated to make a change, to bring about a change in an appropriate way. So the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was a, a party that was developed to try to to get you know representation because many of the people and she mentions it in one of her speeches that you know you had at the time I believe it was like 42 percent of of a given area in Mississippi was African-American and the people were not allowed to register to vote so when you have 42 percent of the population that's not allowed to participate in the voting they're not being represented the people who were being who were being voted into to national office and local offices in Mississippi were not representing a almost half of the people in Mississippi a large part of the people in Mississippi so this Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was organized to help the, the other people be able to, to, to have a way to vote and to get representation that they wanted to be able to be a part of the process. So she went before the Rules Committee. And so you had these delegations, these two delegations from uh, Mississippi, one the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the regular Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. And this is August of 1964 in, in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And so she was going there to help her delegates be, sat, be seated as a part of the convention and to vote for who would be nominated for the Democratic Party. And so she went before the Rules Committee. And after she spoke, right after she spoke, Martin Luther King spoke um, as well, and he supported them. He said, you know, if you're not supporting these people, you're not supporting true democracy, there's a problem here in America. But when she gave her speech, she told the whole story. And, and I, I suggest you Google it, you know, write about it yourself, Google it, look it up. She tells the whole story of what happened to her. She tells the story of her being beaten in jail. She tells the story of them being taken off the bus. She tells the story of, of Miss Ivesta Simpson. She tells exactly what happened to her. And if you could see the faces of the people in the, in the convention as she told her story, they were shocked. This was being broadcast on news, national news. And during her, her speech, President Johnson actually interrupted the broadcast and had a press conference of his own, and people kind of think that that was a way he was trying to take the spotlight off of her. He didn't want this to be shown for whatever reason. He was trying to take the spotlight off of her, and that's why he in interrupted the broadcast with his own, his, his own press conference. But what just happened, it ended up kind of backfiring on him because they ended up running her speech on the nightly news, which even saw maybe even a bigger audience, and people saw her testimony. And she, she challenged them straightforward. Now, at, this, at the Democratic Convention of 1964, they offered her, offered the, the, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, two at-large seats. 
and the the party decided, you know, we have all these people here, two at large seats. We've been waiting 100 years for the right to vote in Mississippi and to have our voices heard. We're not going to accept two at large seats. We're going to fight for something beyond that. And so they, they did not accept those two seats. But but her presentation, her speech at that rule at that convention was remarkable and was the highlight of the convention. And she basically said, you know, she, she looked right at him. She said, you know, all of this, everything that happened to me, you know, being beaten, uh, the things that are happening to people, having their houses firebombed, having churches firebombed, all this is happening on the count that we wanted to register to vote to become first class citizens. And she said, and if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated, I question America. She said, is this America? Well, we have to, where this is the land of the free or the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our phones off of the hook because we're getting death threats nightly just because we want to live to be first class citizens in America. This is something, this is the kind of message that Fannie Lou Hamer brought home and that she said. And the last quote that I'll say that she, she mentioned, she said, your freedom, this is a different part, your freedom is shackled and chained to my freedom. And until I am free, you're not free either. I want to remember Fannie Lou Hamer today and kind of remember her life. Thank you guys for joining me.